You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. All right, we are in Advent, week two. We are preparing ourselves for the coming of Christ. We're going to be in Psalm 30 today. Psalm 30, we'll start in verse one. Feel free to turn there if you have your Bible. Uh, We'll have it on the screen, and you're welcome to use your technology as well. Psalm 130. This is King David, and he writes, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I will wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his hope, in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you today. Uh, We gather here today in various states and forms. Some of us walk into this room with gladness in our hearts and joy in our spirit. Others have deep-seated needs and hurts in our lives. But today, Lord, we gather here simply because of you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would draw near to us, that you would use your words to bring gladness to our hearts and conviction to our souls. Father, we love you, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. In the book of Exodus, there is an encounter between God and Moses. In chapter 33, God speaks to Moses, this appointed leader of God's people whom God had protected and empowered. It was immediately after God had promised them that he was going to deliver them a land of their own. The Egyptian, or the Israelites had just fled from Egypt where they were in slavery and bondage. And God had promised that he would make them a land of his, their own and that he would have Moses be their leader. And immediately after that promise, Moses makes two requests, two um, ask of the Lord for special revelation. One, one, is it me? Am I squeaking? Squeaking a little bit? Okay. Uh, special revelation. First was that God would send his spirit to the Israelites, that he would make himself known, that he would reveal himself to them, that they would know their unique and distinguished position in all of the cosmos as God's chosen people. And so God did. He, he sent a cloud with his glory in it so that the people could see it. And Moses asked that that cloud would then go with them, that the whole world would see that this These are God's people. And then Moses makes a very bold ask. He asks God for him to let him see his very presence. Moses says, God, show me your glory. And surprisingly, God says yes. 
But what we know in scripture is that God's presence, God's glory is so perfect, so holy, so pure, without spot, that we would be crushed by its weight, that we would be dead in the presence of the Lord. And so what God does is has Moses go into a cleft in the rock. Uh, a, a split in the rock and he's surrounded on all three sides and then God puts his hand over the split and his presence passed by Moses. And as he passes by, God removes his hand and allows Moses to see his fading glory, God's back. He doesn't see it full on. He sees the shining glory of God fading away from him. And I think this story from Moses connects to this season of Advent where we celebrate and anticipate the coming of the Christ child. That just as Moses saw the fading glory of God, God often comes to us in this world through muted tones, never in his fullness, but enough to remind us that there are things on the horizon to the likes of which we have never seen before. God's back was sufficient in being enough to remind Moses that he's awesome and powerful and mighty. And Advent in this season that is richer of hope and love and joy and peace reminds us if we let us, let it, if we ponder on it, that there are things beyond this life, that there are things beyond our understandings, that in this current moment that we can only see and experience shadows. We can only see through tinted windows. But this season reminds us that there are greater things ahead. Realities that we have hope for. Not hope in wishful thinking, but hope in certainty that is based upon God's word and his character, his promise to us that God will be God and he will be all that he always is, good and faithful. And so just like putting up the Christmas tree builds anticipation for Christmas morning, Advent, a season where we celebrate and remember the Christ child coming as a babe in the manger in Bethlehem, this season should remind us and build our anticipation for the day that he comes again. That this would be a shadow that will remind us that there are greater things in front of us. Yet we wait. And we wait. And we wait in this already not yet kingdom of God between his ascension and the promise of his return. And we find this life in our waiting to be often a beautiful yet struggle, yet ugly struggle in our waiting. David pins this psalm, Psalm 130. And there's not a consensus on when he penned it. Some say that it was written during the time that he was fleeing from a king at the time named King Saul who was trying to take his life. Others say that David penned this psalm immediately after the aftershocks of his consequences and his shame after his affair with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of his, her husband. But regardless of when it happened, the sentiment is the same. God's people wait. Waiting is a very common position that we find ourselves in. It's unwanted, but it's common. We don't like it. It is not our most favorite pastime. Max Lucado, who's an author, he says this. He says, we don't like to wait. We are a, the giddy-up generation. We frown at the person who takes 13 items into the 12-item express checkout. We drum our fingers while the, cough, the microwave heats our coffee. Isn't that true of us? 
modern society doesn't have much of an appetite for waiting. We don't elevate it. We don't value it. In fact, it often is seen as unfruitful, even an indication of poor leadership. When we sit in line for unreasonable amount of times in our opinions at supermarket lines, we grow frustrated at a lack of foresight in opening other lines. When we wait for somebody to come to our house to fix something or to provide a service for us, if they're late, in our opinion, they had lack of foresight to plan. When we wait for somebody to do something for us and they do it in a way that lacks efficiency and common sense, we grow angry. We have very little room in our life for waiting. Yet, the whole of creation is governed by it. All of creation outside of ourselves is governed by waiting. All of creation doesn't teach us impulsivity or instant gratification or reaction. Creation in itself is, has a built-in rhythm and rhyme where everything waits for its proper place and time. Everything waits, and it cannot come a moment too soon or face dire consequences. Winter must always follow fall. The sun rises and sets in its own timing. Plants grow in a season. And in that season, God has made it that all of the earth accounts for their needs. Life in its creation requires waiting. Life in its new life requires seasons where things die. Nature is unhindered by our concepts of time. In the beauty of nature and in being in nature, in its leisure pace, in its slowness, in its purposeful waiting, often does a restorative work into our hearts in this, our busy life. Nature becomes solitude that reminds us that life doesn't center on us. Because at its most practical level, waiting for whatever it is that we're waiting for, reinforces the most basic truth of our lives. That this life isn't about us. And it never has been. When we wait, we realize that we're not in control. When we wait, we see that we're not in charge. When we wait, we have to establish ourselves in a position of dependency as we wait on something or someone. And we hate it. We hate it. In flesh, our waiting, in this fallen condition, we become aware of the most basic truth of our lives, just as our ancestors did in the garden. When humanity chose themselves over God, when they chose to pursue God, themselves over God, our scripture reminds us that in Genesis 3, that man and woman hid from God and naked and ashamed, they hid from him. They hid from the very same loving creator that they once walked openly with. Why did they hide? Why did they hide? Is it not in this? Is that they would rather hide from God than wait for him to arrive? Because if Adam and Eve were caught in sin and owned it, and they waited, they would make a confession in their waiting, wouldn't they? Their waiting would mean something. It would mean that they're not in control. It would be a confession that they have to submit to something. It would be a confession that they're not their own authority. It would be an admission that they did something wrong that they can't fix. And so let me answer the question again. Why did they hide? 
They hid because they can't deal with the truth. They hide because they don't want to face the reality. Waiting puts us face to face with our most primal worry and fear that life is not in my control, that the universe does not revolve around me. And the same is true of us today. Our inability to wait and the reason that it is so undesirable in our life is that we come face to face with the truth of life in it. And we would rather run from it, distract ourselves from it. We hide. We hide from it. And the enemy in our hiddenness, in the proclivities of our own broken condition, our own heart and sin without right relationship with God, works to convince us in our hiding that waiting is no longer necessary, that it is unneeded to distract ourselves, to divert ourselves from its truth. But more than that, in our hiddenness, in our, in our fallen condition, the enemy conspires to create a counter message that contends that waiting implies God's absence. That waiting becomes an indictment against the very God of the universe himself, against his character. It is so clever, isn't it? That if we don't get what we want within the speed that we expect it, We are prone to believe that God is absent and that he doesn't love us or even this, that he hates us. We often evaluate God's love and his goodness for us by what he gives us and to the speed in which he delivers it to us by our lack of waiting. The reason why Amazon has rose so quickly and why we love it so much is that it gives us exactly what we want with great efficiency and speed. And why is that? Because from their inception, Amazon sought to be in the most customer-friendly organization the globe has ever seen. All of the philosophies of their business revolve around the customer and making them as happy as they possibly can. They learn your behaviors, they study you, and they meet you where they at, you're at, and they give you what they, you want. They want to make you happy. And here's what the rise of Amazon reveals about us. That we really want something different in God. That what we really want in God is a God that works to please us. A God that works to satisfy us. And when he doesn't, he is met with accusations about his goodness, his sovereignty, his authority, and his love. And eventually, we end up finding something else that brings to us what we want in the speed that we want it. And it becomes our God. It becomes our idol and we worship it. Not that we sing to it, but we worship meaning that we devote the entirety of our lives to it for a season. And then ultimately it crushes us and then we forget. So friends, friends, I stand here today to remind you that God is not Amazon and you are not his customer. God is God. He is our redeemer, and he is our only hope in life and death. Waiting doesn't imply his absence. It's not an indictment against his character, because in God's kingdom, our waitings are the avenue of God's grace to us that revealed the truth about him, his heart for humanity, and the goodness of his plan. Our scripture is immersed in God's people waiting. 
immersed in God's people waiting. It is not an uncommon trait for his people. In fact, it probably is the most common trait of all of God's people that they wait. And they're not waiting on cheeseburgers or packages, but for very deep longings of their hearts for justice and love and acceptance and wellness. I mean, think about these examples. Think about Noah, who waited 120 years building an ark waiting for God to deliver on his promise that he would flood the earth. And he was ridiculed and belittled and mocked in that time. Job waited for answers around the destruction of his family and his possessions. And in anguish and suffering to the likes of which we will never experience, he waited in faith for God to vindicate him without compassion from his wife or his friends. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den to be slaughtered. And he waited for the Lord to deliver him. He could have lashed out, but he waited for the Lord. God promised Joseph that he would one day lead his people. But he waited in slavery, in prison, in jail, and through torture and oppression. Abraham waited a hundred years for a son. Moses was sent by God to lead his people from Egypt into the promised land, but he waited for 40 years in the desert and never realized God's promise. Paul pleaded with the Lord over and over again about an infirmity in his body, a thorn in his side. Three times he pleaded and waited to no avail to hear the words from the Lord that my grace is sufficient from you. He waited in prison. He waited in jail. Three times shipwrecked on an island waiting for the Lord to deliver him. Jeremiah, this wonderful prophet in the Old Testament, was given a word from the Lord And he gave it to the Israelites and he waited and he waited for them to hear God's message and repent and reform and turn, but they never did. Jacob agreed to work for seven years, waiting to marry the love of his wife, his wife, Rachel. He worked seven years to promise to someone in order to marry his wife. And then at the end of those seven years, he was deceived and forced to wait seven more years to marry his bride. Mary, the mother of Jesus, of course, waits nine months for the child that was conceived by God to be born, and then another 30 for that promise to be realized and known in the world. Waiting is a part of almost every, if not all, scriptural story that we can find. God's people are waiting people. And some of those people waited and eventually they got what they hoped for. Some of those people waited and they got more than they hoped for. Some of them waited and never received a dime. Some of them waited and got something different than what they asked in both good and bad ways. And in this room, there are multitudes of people who share that same story. Some of you who have waited have waited and God has answered you. Some of you have waited and God has given you abundance. Some of you have waited and are still waiting. And some of you have waited and got something entirely different than what you asked for. In both good and bad ways. And look, I can't tell you the reasons why those answers are different. I'm not that smart to know why God does that. And why some of you are still waiting. But I can tell you why we can wait. And I can tell you why it is good that we do that. 
I want to talk to you about two types of waiting. Worldly waiting and godly waiting. Worldly waiting focuses us on the what of waiting. It focuses on the result of waiting. We are waiting and focusing on a diagnosis, a treatment, an offer, a relationship. We can even wait for the what as in a feeling, to be loved, to be known, to be respected. We can pursue the what even as a purpose that God would give me a path. Worldly waiting directs us to wait for the what we are waiting for. But godly waiting centers us on the who we are waiting on. And more than that, the who that is waiting with us. This is the big idea for us today, friends. Waiting well comes when we take the focus off the what in light of the who. Off the what in light of the who. Example. Let's say you're 14 years old and you're walking in the middle of a forest that with you It's you and your mom and your dad. You have been walking in the same very woods for most of your life. Ever since you could walk, you have been going with your family to these woods. You know these trails like the back of your hand. Your parents know these trails like the back of your hand. And during that walk, one of the pieces of the trail gives out and you tumble, you fall, you collapse, and you snap your leg. You're You're in pain and anguish on the ground and you cannot get up. You cannot walk. You don't have a cell phone. No one has service. But in that moment, your father instantly stands up and says, I'm going to go get help. And your mother is going to stay here. And as you agree and shake your head, you have all the confidence in the world that your dad knows what he's doing and all the belief in your heart that he loves you. But yet at the same time, you are comforted by the loving support of your mother who's in the midst. Now contrast that same scenario, but you're by yourself. You're a teenager in the woods, in anguish, broken leg, can't get up, can't walk, no help, no cell. What changes? Everything changes, doesn't it? In that first scenario, your waiting is informed by the confidence you have in your father and the belief you have in his love for you but you're also supported by the care of your mother. In the second scenario, you have no such assurances of care. You are left by yourself, consumed with all that you can be consumed with, fear. How am I going to make it out of here? All you can focus on is the help. In the first scenario, with your family, if help is delayed or doesn't come, you know there is a good reason behind it because you trust your father. You know that he would give your life, his life to get you the help that you need. It must mean that whatever is preventing it, whatever is delaying it, whatever is changing it has a good reason behind it. But in the meantime, you can suffer and struggle well in the midst of the situation because your loving mother is with you. The difference between godly waiting and worldly waiting is in that we can submit and trust God. That we can confess the truth of ourselves that we are dependent. That we don't need to focus on the what of our waiting. Why? 
Because we have all the confidence in the world that our Father in heaven knows what he's doing. And he loves us beyond reproach. We have all the reason for confidence in God's character and his promise. We have seen it in our history and we read it in the history of our people that we can rest that knowing no matter what is happening in my world, that God is working for his good. Even if that good doesn't come in my time frame, even if it doesn't come the way I wanted, even if it doesn't come at all, we know that God has good reasons we know that if it was all possible and if it was all necessary, it would happen. But more than that, we can have peace in this. Not only can I rest in the who I'm waiting on, but I can have peace in the one that is waiting with. That the triune God of the universe sees me and he knows me and he's with me. The Apostle Paul brilliantly speaks to the church in Corinth about the suffering of people. And Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by. What lies beyond our waiting isn't just a God that is so magnanimous in that he knows all the plans of all the people who have ever existed and that he has created all things, but also in a God that has made himself so near and available through his son, that he is described within the scriptures as an ever-present help in times of trouble. Christ changes everything about our waiting. Do you remember earlier when I talked about waiting reveals the most basic truth of our lives? That we are not in control, that we are not in charge, the whole of the universe does not revolve around us, that we're not as strong and powerful as we thought we were? Outside of Christ, in our sins, those thoughts never find redemption. They never find peace. They are condemning thoughts. Those thoughts condemn us. Those truths condemn us. They frighten us. They scare us. We avoid them. We hide from them. But in Christ, all of those condemning thoughts actually become freedom. They actually become life-giving. Why? Because through the love of Christ... And through his complete and utterly sufficient sacrifice, accepting the truth of who I am and my fallenness and my sins brings heavenly rivers of mercy and grace that fills the void between all that I am not and all of who God is. Which means this. That it's actually during the most sustained periods of waiting in our life that we come to realize that what we were waiting for will never be better than who we are waiting on and with. We don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to distract ourselves. We don't need to give ourselves away to lesser things because God meets us in our waiting and he proves to be more than enough for us. In this room, there is a cumulative amount of waiting that may span decades, if not centuries, we are waiting for answers. We are waiting for justice. We are waiting for hope. We are waiting for less division. We are waiting 
for a pandemic to end. We are waiting for masks to go away. We are waiting for public civility to return to our spaces. We're waiting to be reacquainted with past loves and relationships in our lives. We are longing and waiting for deep-seated needs in our lives. And I say to all of you who are waiting in this room, that your waiting might actually not be waiting. It actually might be God's courtship of you. That you might realize who he is. And that would be enough for you. In this psalm, David writes a plea. He pleads to the Lord here. And I think that there are some really important postures here to remember in our waiting. There's good to remember in this. David opens with this plea, a cry that God would hear his voice. Many of us in this room are waiting and we never expose our vulnerability in our hearts to the Lord. We wait with expectation that God's going to do for us whatever we want. But some of you in this room have waited and patiently, faithfully prayed. And at some point you have given up. But sometimes it is merely the act of praying the pleas of our lives that are the exact thing that God has us waiting for. To reveal to us more about himself, to increase our faithfulness to him, praying humbles us. It reminds us of what is true and right and good in this world. Jackie Hill Perry said this. She said that God doesn't grow tired of hearing our petitions. We are the ones that grow tired of petitioning. Keep praying. God hasn't stopped listening. All of the Psalms are in some ways a plea to God in the midst of situations. The second thing that David does is that he confesses and he remembers. He confesses and remembers. Dave, David remembers his humanity. He remembers his weakness. He remembers his sin. And he remembers the scandalous, undeserved forgiveness that he has in God by faith. David remembers God's mercy and his grace. He remembers who he is in the universe. He recognizes that he is under authority. He knows his right position in the world. He confesses and remembers. And the last thing that David does is that he speaks hope. Not a hope that is a wishful thinking, but one that has certainty in what David says in his word. David confesses a hope that is anchored to the character and the promises of God. And that hope keeps him alive. It keeps him anchored and going in the midst of life. Spurgeon once said that those who do not hope cannot wait. Those who do not hope cannot wait. In our waiting, let us pray, let us confess, let us remember, and let us hope. Let us pray, let us confess, let us remember, let us hope. These are useful tools in the midst of our waiting as we trust in the one whom we're waiting for and we're at peace with the one who is waiting with us. As we see waiting, not as God's absence or God's lack of love or an indictment against his goodness, but as the most common posture of God's people. God's people are waiting people. Because we can wait. Because we can wait. Because in our waiting, we are reminded that there is a God who is with us, 
who is worth waiting for. Amen? Amen.